All right, so we are in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where I'd like us to get to. I want to make sure. I don't know. I opened this question up last time. This 15 minutes, in the, which is fine. Uh, is there anything left of, of chapter 2? I've got a couple of things I wanted to throw out there. Anything left of chapter 2 that you had a comment or a question about? Chris? No, no. Just... <laughs> Um, so I, I, I think I mentioned, but there's this thing that Paul does in verses 12 and 13 where he starts to kind of tell a story, and then he doesn't, get, he doesn't get back to it. He doesn't really tell us the rest of it until chapter 7. And so I don't want to steal the thunder of, I can't remember if you're going to be teaching chapter 7. I think I will, so I'll steal my own thunder. Um, so in, in 12 and 13, he talks about that when he was in Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. And then he kind of starts talking about something else. And you, you kind of left to wonder, so did he ever meet back up with Titus? What was the message from Titus? Was it good news? Was it bad news? How did this thing end up working out? I do want us to just read briefly chapter 7, and uh, starting in verse 5. If someone would be willing to do that, uh, read chapter 7. Well, yeah, let's just read it. Chapter 7, verse 5 through 16. Any volunteers for that? Micah? For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rights, but we were troubled on every side, outside of conflicts, inside of fears. Nevertheless, God comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry for my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you remain sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you that your sorrow in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. 
But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Thank you. And like I said, we'll come back to this in more detail when we get to chapter 7. But I do just want to, to, to help us get an idea of that whole picture. Paul wrote a hard letter. Whether that was 1 Corinthians or perhaps a letter in between these two. He wrote something and by the hands of Titus, it was brought to Corinth. And what I appreciate reminding ourselves of here in chapter 7 is even though Paul knew it was hard, even though he kind of felt sorry for having to be so hard, how did he anticipate they would respond? Based on what we just read, how did Paul think this was going to go? Josh? Yes. So, if it was 1 Corinthians, that, that was a letter where it listed all kinds of, all kinds of sinful things that they were up to. They, they had turned the Lord's Supper into something that was never intended. They had turned love into something that was never intended. They had turned miracles into things that was never intended. And yet, he felt a confidence saying, I'm going to tell you hard things, but Titus, listen, you're going to take this letter, and I have every confidence that, that they're going to respond well to this hard instruction, to this disciplinary action. And they, they proved Paul to, to be true. He was, he had, his confidence was not misplaced. And so I just want us to, to take great hope in that, take comfort in that, in the same way that Paul took comfort. He was distressed. He couldn't find Titus. He wanted to know how this was going to go. But deep down, he had a, a hope and, and a confidence that they would... Um, react with the right kind of sorrow. And we'll talk about those two different types of sorrow uh, when we get to seven. Yeah. I think that may be a challenge to us. How would we receive such a letter? Um, and do we have that kind of confidence in one another? Do I say, uh, you may want to say something to, to Larry, but uh, hey, Larry's not going to really listen to you. Yet. He just... Uh, He's just stubborn and he's going to sit in his ways. No, we see that, that Paul believes that the Holy Spirit is at work in these people. Yes, absolutely. And so he doesn't, he doesn't already conclude, this isn't going to go well, so therefore I'm not even going to try. Or this isn't going to go well, so I'm only going to try but it's half-hearted. No, he, he does what needs to be done, and it's hard, and it takes effort. But he has every confidence. He, he anticipates a successful result. And they choose, they choose, because they have a choice in, in chapter 7, to obey and to repent. And, and we can praise God for that in the same way that Paul did. I had made a, a couple of comments about these peddlers of God's word. He mentions in chapter 17, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17 of chapter 2. There is no chapter 17. 
Um, in any other thoughts about these individuals, because really, they are the reason why Paul goes into what he does in chapter 3. And so what, what do we know about, from the whole letter, what do we know about these individuals? Either what we've read thus far, some of it we kind of have to infer, but there are some things where he very clearly calls them out for things later on in the letter. What do we know? Okay, Sunday morning I couldn't get you guys to shut up, so... say about that aroma, to some people it's going to be very attractive. And to some people, the truth is going to be repulsive. What it seems like these individuals were doing, based on this term he gives them in verse 17, they were making sure that their message was only ever attractive. And they were not willing to say the hard things at times because they wanted, they wanted the, the, um, the praise of men. And they were willing even to put down Paul and his approach in order to make themselves seem more important. What else do we know about them? Who, who are these people? They're not like people who are actually peddling merchandise from town to town. That's not... Micah, what do we know? Among other things, we, we know that wherever Paul went to preach the gospel, um, he, would, he was either met with opposition by, by those of his own nation, of the Jews, um, or soon after leaving, um, that there would be people who perhaps were Converted, uh, but they they want to hold on to um, to the old way of life, um, and insist that others do that as well. Um, and so they, you see, in this instance, they try to perhaps demonize or villainize uh, Paul and and making accusations. He changed his travel plans. He uh, he is preaching to you, and it doesn't even. Except payment, so perhaps they did receive payment uh, for, for their ministry. And, and the point needs to be made that there's nothing wrong with with um, the the allowing the ox to thread the Sure. But they were doing it out of selfish. Right, they were turning this selfless thing that Paul had chosen to do. I, I, I could in, you know, extract money from you. It's right to be paid for this kind of service. But Paul said, I chose not to for your good. And these individuals are saying, well, if he loved you, he would have taken money from you. Clearly, he doesn't respect you. So they were taking something good and selfless and twisting it into to use it as a weapon against Paul. Yeah. Are you referring to the false teachers in chapter 11? Yes. Like it's to Eve being 
deceived by the spirit or by the serpent. Same is true of someone who comes with the Yes. Um, so I want to make sure I've got that right. Yeah, there are a couple of, of references uh, specifically in chapter 11. Um, but he says in verse 4 of chapter 11, If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in least inferior to these super apostles. And I, every time I, I hear him say that, I, I see him do the air quotes, right? They are so impressive, these guys, because they consider themselves messengers and servants of God for different reasons than Paul did. Because when Paul starts bragging about himself later on in this letter, he doesn't use things that we would typically use to brag. He says, let me tell you why I'm qualified. Look at all the hardship I've experienced. That qualifies me. Um, these individuals were trying to uh, demonstrate their authority or establish their authority through human means, um, through impressive talk, and through um, uh, extracting money and things like that. And these were, in chapter 11, in verse 22... He says, are they Hebrews? And it's a rhetorical question. Are they Hebrews, these individuals who are giving you such trouble? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So these aren't Gentiles who are coming in and, and causing problems. These are Jews. And I say coming in. Acts 18 actually says the first thing that Paul did when he came to Corinth was what he typically did when he came to a city. He went to the synagogue and he preached. So even though Corinth was primarily a Gentile city, there were already Jews living there. So whether these were Jews who were there already, the church was established, and after Paul left, these Jews then kind of started to cause trouble. Or, as Micah mentioned, they were the, the Jews that typically followed him mostly on his uh, first missionary journey. They were like a couple of days behind the guy. <laughs> he would preach, he would establish a church, and then they would come up right behind and cause trouble and run him out of town. Um, whether they were already there or they came in from somewhere else, these are individuals who are trying to um, get these Christians, these Gentile Christians, to conform to the law of Moses. And their attempts to do that uh, also involved diminishing the authority of, of Paul. So as we read chapter 3, let's kind of keep that in mind. He's... he's Attempting to start answer some of, answering some of these things um, and starting to refute some of them. Can I have a volunteer? We're going to read the whole chapter, but for this evening, I, I'm only anticipating getting through about half of this, and that's, and that's okay. Do we have a volunteer to read all 18 verses? Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to wait it out. Like, somebody's going to raise their hand and read this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, 
put on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ for God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will, we, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was the glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness much far exceeded in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old, read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only those, only through Christ, is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. All kinds of things to talk about. Let's just kind of open it with our, our general questions. What, what stands out to you? What in here, and there's quite a bit, what in here reminds us of, of other things, other areas of Scripture? What questions, perhaps, do you have, Josh? Absolutely. There is now an access to God that was not previously accessible to everyone, 
under the old law. Um, what else? Alan? <coughs> There's a great contrast going on here between the old and new. And I have in the past taken it and made a mimeograph copy of the page and just had people underline what was the letter that killeth and everything that had to do with administration of death. As we went through it, if it were something of the spirit, I'd circle it. And so by the time we got down to the bottom, we were able to go back through it and say, here is that which included the Ten Commandments, that which included the old law, uh, that which was done away. We see more clearly now through, through this. It's just, it's an excellent place to go to convince somebody about the, um, the law having been abolished. Right, because remember, that's, that's something that this church is now struggling with, right? Someone has come in, and they're trying to get them to, to believe, look, we, we still need the law of Moses. This is actually where, where salvation comes. This is, this is important. Um, and you have to do that before you can accept Jesus. It seems like that's what's happening here. And he, he holds them up to each other and compares them to each other and uses pretty strong language to describe the old law. And like I said, uh, probably we'll do more of the discussion of that second half of, of this chapter on Sunday. Um, but it's important to note that even though, he, even though he calls it a ministry of condemnation, he calls it uh, something a uh, ministry of death, he does admit, though, that it did have glory. It was not worthless or vile or evil, but it was not sufficient. It, it, it wasn't enough. And God knew that. God always knew that he would send his son to fulfill that law. But by itself, it was not everything he needed. And so by itself, it could only bring condemnation and death. It did have glory. So much so that, that Moses' face shone when he would commune with God. But what happened to Moses' face after he communed with God... It, it would eventually fade. That wouldn't last forever. The glory was, was something that diminished over time, whereas the law that we have, the covenant that we now have through Jesus, is something that will never fade. The, the glory, when you compare it, um, how does he say it? He says it, um, verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. He said, there was value, but when you stack it up next to Christ, it almost appears worthless. Bob? Yeah, I was thinking about that very thing, and I just turned back to Deuteronomy 4. And, and uh, you know, it's easy for us to uh, kind of discount that, but, you know, the giving of the law, as, as much trouble as it, for them, they needed to see where they were. Mm -hmm. So God gave them exactly what they needed to see where they were. Right? It's, I just I like to read this. It says, "For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God? Whenever we call on Him, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today?" 
And that, that was going to be the schoolmaster. That was going to be what trained them to see their need for something more than just the knowledge of their shortcomings. Yes. They needed, they needed a sacrifice. Yes. And therein lies our discussion. Yes. With, without the old law, for Jesus to show up on the scene and say, I am the Lamb of God, it wouldn't mean anything. What does that mean? For him to, to say, I have, have now become the, the veil that is torn, and you now have access to God, without the tabernacle, what, what would it mean? It, it, it would be pointless. It would be worthless. Um, yes? So I'm kind of moving on a little bit. Oh, no. But, um, I loved in verse 2 how it talks about that we are the letter that they wanted to see. Yes. Um, and so that what's in our hearts is what... <laughs> It's being shown to us, so um, just that we can be anything we say or do is an example to them. But that also, what you behold is whatever what you. What is it? When you, you become what you behold, so what you are looking at is the letter that people are going to see. Hmm. You become what you behold. I like. I like that. Right. It's not yours. I mean, I'm going to put that. You know. Yeah. So I think tagging on to that, um, verse 3, I love the imagery um, where it draws a picture of God writing not on tablets of stone, but in our very own hearts. Yes. So that's, um, I'm sorry. It's amazing to think that His Word is written on our hearts. Yes. Which is not a New Testament idea, right? This is not the first time God's used terminology like this. Even back in Jeremiah, he talked this way. This is, this is the way God always intended. It's where God always intended his law to reside, right? And just because the first law was written on stones, we see throughout Israel's history, they had a really hard time taking it from those stones and putting it inside of them. They just kind of kept doing the outside stuff, but they didn't, let it, they didn't let it permeate. They didn't let it get inside. God says in Jeremiah, eventually I'm going to bring a covenant, and I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to get it inside where it actually affects change. And that's one of the, the big differences um, with the old and the new. Did I see Lisa? Or... Nope. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump back. Let's at least uh, try to do the first five, six verses of, of chapter 3 here. Um, what's, this, what's this idea of letters of recommendation? Why, why is Paul bringing that up? What were these for? Why is Paul seemingly averse to these letters of recommendation? Send a letter with you 
And then when he got there, the saints, the um, disciples received him, and uh, he did great work with them. Yes. So, yeah, so you're referring to Acts chapter 18. Uh, there's a section, verses 24 through 28. They encounter Apollos. Um, they, they correct him about his misunderstanding about the baptism of John versus the baptism of Jesus. And then they, uh, it says, um, in verse 27, when he wished, when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Right? So they're saying, hey, look, there's this guy, Apollos. He's doing good work for the Lord, and, and he likely carried that letter with him so that when he arrived, the, the group there would know, hey, this, this guy's doing good work, right? Paul actually does this to other people in some of his letters. In Romans, he does it. Back in 1 Corinthians, he does it. Paul was not averse to letters of recommendation. They weren't inherently bad, but why is he taking issue with it here at 1 Corinthians? Awesome. Yeah, and you can almost hear it in his voice, right? This request you're making of me is, is ridiculous at its core. You are there, church at Corinth, because I established you. To, like, I came and brought the gospel to you. And yet now, there are people who are convincing you that now, in order for me to come back, I need some approval from somewhere. Like, it, it's ludicrous on its face. And he's saying, I don't need that. Not only does he say, I was the one who established you, but, but what, is, what does he say about them? Because he does this really kind of neat thing, playing on this idea of letter of recommendation. He said, yes, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Not only to give me credence, like that my work is actually valuable and that I have authority, but he says it's written on our hearts, some translations say your hearts, the point is the same regardless, to be known and read by all. So anyone should be able to look at the church of Corinth and know that my work is valuable, Paul says, that my work is genuine. The gospel that I preached to you is true. Because you're an open book, we might say, in our vernacular. Did I see a hand? Was it Lisa? Yeah. He said in chapter 12, verse 11, he told the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 11, I ought to have been commended by you. Yes. Yes, and um, I don't have teenagers, but I was one at one point. Don't teenagers get to a point where they've convinced themselves that they know far more than their parents do? 
and the parents are trying to communicate, look, you just, you don't realize, but right now you think that you know better. That's what Paul's child children in the faith are doing. They're still a fairly, all things considered, fairly young church, and they're, they're basically saying, yeah, you know, we're going to need some, some references from you, Father, <laughs> before you come back. Um, and he does. He turns it and says, no, really, you, you ought to be doing me a service. You ought to be commending, commending me. It also is a really cool thing he does. He says, you are our letter. And so if they're questioning him, he, he's saying, how are you living? If you aren't living the way you should be, then you wouldn't be commending this to anyone. But if you're living the life that you should be, since we were the one who taught you, you're the letter. You are it. We, we shouldn't have any commendations from anybody except for your life. And that's what we always, we're constantly saying. It's not what we do. It's how we live. It's, it's our life. And if our life isn't Christ-like, mm-hmm. then... We aren't his letter. We aren't being his letter right. to recommend him to people of the world. So if the world were to read us at a letter, as a letter, would they come to the conclusion that we are a letter of Christ? That, that he was the one who authored us? Would they come to that conclusion? They should. And it's, it's a sobering thought. He says in verse 3, You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And it goes back to part of the gospel message that Jesus presented during his ministry. You will know them by their fruits. A good good tree is not going to bear bad fruit. And a bad tree will be incapable of producing good fruit, truly good fruit. And so Paul is saying, look, if you're living the way that you're supposed to be living, you're going to be a letter that others can read and, and know. Yes, Michael. And you can see the, the importance of the care that Paul took as a writer of this epistle, the gospel that he's writing in on their hearts. Mm. Um, it would be very tempting if he recognizes that he's the author to write his own message, to teach his own thing, so that they are they are an epistle of Paul. But he recognizes that he's just writing down what Christ has told him. He, he, uh, Christ, in essence, is dictating the letter um, and keeping that in mind. And, and to apply it to us, whenever Whenever we share the gospel here, here together or to the world, are we sharing Christ's message or am I preaching my Yeah. Or am I preaching such and such an author that I've fallen in love with? Or am I simply going to the book and saying this, this is his? In fact, we see Paul do it. At the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, where they have started to divide themselves based on who taught them the gospel. And he says, no. 
You know, Paul was not crucified for you. Some people say, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. He said, no, remove me from the equation. That's not what this is about. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You had faith in Christ. He's the one who saves you. He's the one that you are disciples of. And Paul consistently contrasted to these false teachers that we read about. Paul is consistently removing himself from the equation. It's not about him. It's about the message. Can I see a hand? No. <clears throat> How does Paul answer a question that he, he actually posed a question back in chapter 2 and verse 16? When he talked about this fragrance, this fragrance that to some will be appealing, to some will be abhorrent. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Who, who, who is sufficient that these things would be so in their lives. He actually answers that question here in verses 4 and 5. He says, You all are letters of recommendation. You all are living as testaments of our work. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So to answer his question, he says, who's sufficient? Christ is. And, and he's allowed us to do this work, but he's the one providing the sufficiency, right? It is, it is not of, of his own doing. It's not coming from us, he says. He actually takes great pains, I believe it's in his letter to the Galatians, to prove to them, I didn't go anywhere and learn this from anybody else. I didn't study under the, the feet of... I, I simply received from the Lord, directly from the Lord, the gospel that I presented to you. Mike, can you hear So, uh, I have a note in my, uh, in my Bible uh, connecting this passage to chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 15, that God works in us so that we can be put to work in His kingdom. We can see that God comforts us so that we can comfort, strengthen, and encourage others. Chapter 5, in verse 18, um, that God reconciles us to Himself through Christ so that we can be ministers in, in part of this ministry of reconciliation. And so it's not about us. And God is the one, God is the sufficient herb. He is the one who makes us sufficient. Yeah. I'm totally fine with you making up words, man. He's sufficient. He is the most sufficientist. Right? I do appreciate you bringing out the, the word ministry or minister. Paul uses that throughout this letter. And again, it's a contrast to those who are trying to exert authority. He's saying, I'm doing what I'm doing as a, as a servant to you. I am not your leader. I am not some, some person who is better than you because I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. I'm a servant to you. I am, I am rendering a service. And so even when we are put in positions where we are, are giving to someone what they desperately need, it does not make us in any way superior to them. 
It, it doesn't. We, by the grace of God, have come to this knowledge and we have chosen to accept it. It doesn't make me better than those who haven't. They're in a position that they don't want to be in. They're in a lost position and we're trying to help them, but I'm not the one to help them. I'm simply going to point them in the direction of the one who can. Uh, Katrina. Um, so when we're talking about um, being the letter His letters primarily saying, God, amazing, so I should try to be amazing too. Like that. Or he says, I'm trying to be amazing because God is amazing. So maybe that's what our letter should be. I am the only good thing because of God. Again, to go back to the gospel of Christ, we're to do good works so that those who see our good works will glorify our Father in heaven. Right? We are to, as it says later in this chapter, reflect that off of ourselves towards the one who, who really has brought us life. We've got a, well, we've still got a good handful of minutes here. In the first six verses... Um, what other kind of questions or comments do we have? If you want to go past the verse 6, you totally can. That's fine. So, <clears throat> I don't know. I probably don't know how to say this. I'm going to say it's probably going to come out wrong. <laughs> but I'm just... I've got things running through my mind right now. Paul keeps using this term, the letter. Do we really know what this term, the letter, means? Um, keep talking about then, instead of a letter, or instead of the letter, I think he begins by using the term talking about the old law. How the old law, as a written letter, just does nothing but cause death. Because it can't be kept perfectly. But then I also get the implication that Paul is even saying his written words are not to be construed as a written law either, because the law is from or because the new covenant is from God. It's from it's the Spirit of God, and that and there again, if you know, it almost sounds like I'm saying we shouldn't follow up or shouldn't consider what Paul says as God's word, and that's not what I'm saying. But I think that he's equating even his written letter as. Be careful to not take this as a new written covenant because the covenant is actually the spirit that is written on our hearts, on flesh, not on tablets of stone. It'd be interesting to kind of talk through that a little bit. Sure. I, th I think I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. Um, how do we know what it was that Paul preached? The, the only way we know what gospel Paul presented is because some people wrote it down. And so when Paul in Galatians says, if anyone comes and presents a gospel different than the one I preach, let him be accursed. 
The, the only way I know that I'm delivering that same gospel is because we have it written down. And so, again, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I think he's cautioning, and I'll speak, say loudly, I think he's cautioning them to a degree in that um, we, we need to make sure that we understand that this new covenant is not a covenant of codices and laws that have to be kept perfectly so that we can make it to heaven. I'm not saying that what Paul isn't writing and what he wrote or what he preached is not relevant and is not God's word. I believe it absolutely is. But I think that he's saying that, that there's a distinction between the old law, which was a law of letter, right? A law written down on tablets of stone, and there's a distinction between the new law, this law of the spirit that is written on the hearts of flesh. Even Paul says, you know, you are our letter because it is written on your hearts of mm -hmm. flesh, not Understood. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's a couple of points that I don't have in front of me and some verses I think are, are worth looking into and I'll bring for, for Sunday morning. Um, I, don't, I don't think this is what you're saying. I will just say, if, if we are not careful, we can devalue this written word to such an extent that the conclusion is, therefore, I, I don't have to follow it closely. And, no, we don't read Paul, we don't read of anyone, Peter, Paul, or, or anyone preaching the gospel, talk of the law of liberty in the same way that the law of Moses was talked about. You shall be very careful to observe all the things that I can. God said it over and over again. We don't hear them say that in that way in the New Testament. But what we do hear Paul say is... The things that I've written and spoken to you, you're supposed to keep. And I've, I, I don't have that passage in front of me, but he specifically says those things. What I've written and what I've spoken to you. We read Peter speak of Paul's written words, and he equates them with Scripture. He calls them both the same. For us to do anything less, um, I, I think is, is devaluing in a way that, that God did not intend. But there is a difference in this law, this new law. And it's called a law. Law implies law-keeping, right? There's instructions and they're supposed to do those things. There's a big difference. He here calls the first one a law of condemnation and a law of death. This new one is called a law of what? Of liberty, right? When you compare the two, one gives you death and one is freedom, some translations say. Freedom. It still requires doing what, what God said to do, understanding that there's now a grace and a mercy and a forgiveness that was not available in the same kind of way that the old law had. I see all kinds of questions. Yeah. What did he say to Timothy? What did?
Absolutely. Absolutely. And if Peter calls Paul's writing scriptures, I, I can't call it anything different than that. And I shouldn't treat it any differently than that. Was that the second bell or first bell? Say it anyway. I, I don't know how to say it. I understand like saying uh, I struggle with it too. The way I kind of I feel like this, these writings aren't the gospel, but these writings contain the gospel. They contain the message of the gospel. To me, there's a difference. One would be simple document. Okay. These writings, you said these writings are not the gospel, but they contain the gospel. I would agree with that. And again, I'll bring a couple points on Sunday. Um, we need to understand that the instruction of Jesus did not end at Jesus' death. Jesus himself said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will guide you into things that you aren't ready for now. And what was he meaning? He was meaning these, what we call the epistles, what we call the book of Acts. And so I can't compartmentalize them and say, I'm only going to say the things that came out of Jesus' mouth. What came out of Jesus' mouth was, I'm going to send the helper who's going to give you my words. Right? Is that the second bell? It must be, because we're filling the auditorium. Uh, we're going to do the rest of chapter 3 in, uh, on Sunday. Thank you.